Matthew 6, uh, our main portion is going to be 5 through, I believe it's 8 or 9. Uh, it's just, yeah, 5 through 8. So this section that we're in on prayer actually goes from 5 basically to 15, uh, but the end of this section is the Lord's Prayer. And so to try to, to try to tackle that in with the portion of 5 through 8, we might be here for a while if we did that. Um, and I want, to, I want to take a Sunday, Lord willing, next Sunday, at least one Sunday, and give focus to the Lord's Prayer um, and to see the, the truth, the riches, the depth, that is in this prayer that we might take for granted um, sometimes. I know when I put the girls to bed and it's time to pray, I'll, if I'm ready to go, maybe I was like, let's just say the Lord's Prayer. Um, but the truth and the riches of it uh, are so deep and so valuable that I want to take some specific time for that uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, so let's not waste any time. Let's get to what we need to do. We are in a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where He's warning about what we said, performing or practicing righteousness before others. Or we might have said it, living out our faith or performing religious duties. Those three things, namely, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So today... We start prayer in verse 5, uh, but let's read verse 1 of chapter 6 because it is the introduction and then applies down to each of those three practices. So let's read 1, jump down to 5, and go ahead and read just till verse 8. So 6 verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, so we have a, a repetition. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's say a quick prayer. Lord God... By your Spirit, lead the words that come from my mouth and, and open the eyes and the ears of those who hear. Lord, that we might take in divine truth, divine instruction from our Lord Jesus, that we might receive it by the power of your Spirit. God, that it might glorify you in our receiving it. 
and might make us more like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So verse 1, again, just a bit of repetition here. Beware, it's a caution Jesus is giving uh, in, in this point of the sermon of practicing your righteousness in front of people so that they'll go, hey, look what he's doing. Look what she's doing. Because notice in the end of verse 1, the danger, the, the consequence, the result of someone doing these things, giving to the poor, the needy, praying and fasting before others. What does he say? If that is the case, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So let me just lay that out for you. That's not a good thing. To not receive a a reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's not just to say you're not going to have the crown or the nice mansion. It's not a good thing. It's revealing the state of you internally and your lack of unity with God through Jesus Christ. It's not a good thing. It's not just like, oh, I'll get good, I'll get salvation, I just might not get the good stuff when I get there. No, that's not what we're talking about here. And then he goes on and talks about giving to the needy. This is one of these practicing of righteousness, this acting in our faith, of praying and fasting. And you might be sitting there saying, hmm, I don't really do any of those. Well, Jesus gives this teaching with an understanding that He has an expectation that you are doing those things. When you pray, when you give to the needy, when you fast, He expects those who are in the kingdom to do these things. And we talked last week about why there's an expectation of why of, of giving to the needy. Um, we won't necessarily do that this way today in prayer, but the way we're going to work through this this morning is I want to um, I want to give you proper motives for prayer, proper motivation for prayer, because there's we see the wrong motivation here. In the beginning, they want to be heard by men, right? So I want to start with giving us proper motivations and a definition of prayer. It's not my definition. I, I took it and I'll, I'll tell you where I took it from. Um, so let that be something that's in our minds, the definition and the, and the motives, the godly motives for prayer. And then I want to look at these two negative examples that Jesus gives And then I want to go back to the definition of prayer, break it down to show us, um, to, uh, to help us fight against the negative motives that will be before us and that Jesus teaches us against. So with that, here's the definition. I received this definition from John Bunyan. Uh, have you ever heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress? Uh, yeah, um written by uh, John Bunyan in the 1600s. It's, it, regardless, John Bunyan is a Baptist uh, pastor 
who was in imprisoned for him his preaching the gospel, right? But he wrote a book on prayer and he defines it to this way. Prayer is, now there's a lot of words, but we'll break it down at the end of our time together. Here's the definition. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of the heart and soul to God through Christ, by the help of the Spirit, according to His Word. Now, I'm just going to read it one more time, but like I said, we're going to break it down in a little bit. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of the heart and soul to God through Christ, by the help of the Spirit, according to the Word. That's John Bunyan's definition of prayer. Now, the main motives, godly motives for prayer. Quickly, I have four of them. Four motives for prayer. Number one, seeking God. Seeking God. Specifically, though, as we'll see in our text, Yahweh. The actual God, right? Seeking God. Not just a God, but Yahweh. And what does it do? What does it imply if you are seeking something? If you're after the gold, what are you, why, why are you after the gold? Because it's valuable, right? So, the main motive to prayer is God's infinite value. And you wanting to know it. And to hold it. And to have it. And to cherish it. So, we can, as we look at these motives, you can actually um, examine your prayer life. And then say, oh... Maybe my prayer life is here because I don't have that motive. Or in this case, I don't see the infinite value of God. And therefore, I have no desire to seek Him. If you have no prayer life, it is safe to say you have no value in God. And therefore, why pray? Why do this thing? Why seek Him? Number two, seeking His counsel or His help. We pray to seek His counsel or His help. Here again, we're acknowledging He's the one with the wisdom. He's the one with the power. He's the one who is sovereign. And as we do this, and if we are motivated to pray to seek His counsel and His help, you are declaring that you are needy. And that's okay. You declare your dependency on Yahweh, who is all-wise, all-powerful, and sovereign ruler of your life. He is Lord. Again, if you don't value, if you don't believe in those characteristics of God, then you will seek not His help. You will not seek His help. Or if you trust in yourself more than God, you will not seek His help or His counsel. Number three, to give thanks is a motive for prayer. To give thanks. If the first two are true, that God is God and He is valuable, and two, He is all-wise, powerful, and sovereign, and you are depending upon Him, you will 
live a life of gratitude towards him. And that is our prayer of thanksgiving. Now there is a, this one's a little bit more difficult because there are a lot of people who are thankful or blessed because of their life condition. And they have no, and it is not connected to the actual God of the universe through Jesus Christ. And so you might have a nice bank account. You might have a nice house. You might have a large family. You might have a lot of good things. And you might say you're thankful. But I would ask you to be reminded of the first two. In your thankfulness, are you thankful for the God of this universe who created you and sustained you? And do you find him infinitely valuable? Do you need him? Or are you so thankful for all that you have, you really don't need anyone else, including God? Number four, again, these are the motives for seeking God, the true motives, the godly motives, and there are many more, but these four are main headings. Number four, seeking forgiveness and restoration. Again, if the ones above, our first few motives are true, and if you truly believe you are sinful towards this all-wise, all-powerful, and sovereign God who created all things and is infinitely valuable, if you truly believe you're sinful, then you will come to him seeking forgiveness. For you have sinned against an all-valuable, infinitely wise and powerful and ruler of your life. And you will want to do nothing else but to seek his forgiveness because you want to be restored into a relationship with this God. And these are our four, our four motives, our definition. And now let's turn to our text in verse five. And let's just, we'll quickly walk through this because it, it's pretty self-explanatory what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but I, I, in that, I haven't seen any of you stand up and shout out really loud your prayer for any of us to hear. I, don't, I haven't seen any of you on the street corner yelling your prayers real loud so that others won't see you. So while we can look at this, and it might not directly apply to our issues or our life, the principle therein definitely does. The principle of what drives their motives definitely is in your heart right now and in mine right now hypocrisy, seeking pleasure or praise from others, seeking to be recognized, seeking to be known as a good person. And that motive to be recognized, to be praised, to be known as a good person will drive you to hypocrisy. It will drive you to be something that you are truly not. And as we said last week, for those that weren't here, that word that Jesus uses hypocrisy is a word that was actually a positive word. It just meant a stage actor, someone who is playing a part. And that's what a hypocrite is. Someone who is playing the part. Someone who, in the context of Jesus' teaching, they say, look at how righteous I am. I give to the needy. Listen to me pray. And see how I am struggling as I fast. Please acknowledge 
my holiness. In our context, it would say, please acknowledge I'm a true Christian. That's what we would say. And so the principle of hypocrisy for the sake of seeking recognition, praise, and acceptance from man is deep-seated within us. Now, that pretty much knocks out the first verse. Verse 5. And when you pray, again, the expectation is there that you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites. This is what he is wanting you to be cautious of. Do not be like those who are putting on a show. For what do they do? They love to stand and pray. Now, love. That's not the agape that we are so familiar with, but the phileo which is more of an affection, a personal attachment. The hypocrite has an affection and a personal attachment and desire to be recognized. And so therefore, what they do when they pray, they stand. Notice that. They They love to stand and pray. Now, Is that a problem that we stand when we pray? I know a lot of you who actually get up off of your seat to pray. Is Jesus saying you should not do that? He's not. He's not getting on to them. He's not, um, he's not telling us that we must not pray on our feet. But remember, it's about the motive. Why do they stand? Well, it tells us. They stand in the synagogues, in the street corners, that they might be seen by others. So if you're not standing, the opposite would be seated, kneeling, crouched, whatever the case may be. So the illustration here of standing is because they want to be seen. Right? They want to be noticed. And the best way to be noticed is to be standing tall. And that's why when you guys hit the deer woods this, these next couple months and you're trying to sneak up on one, you're not walking around like this. But you're probably going to get low. Probably going to sneak around. You're trying to be quiet, secret. So that's the point of... This idea that you must, uh, that they stand to pray. Now, but we can also think about it in this other sense, though, as well. When you tell someone to stand tall, what are you telling them to do? To be prideful, to be proud, stand up. And that's the exact opposite of what Christ calls us to pride, but calls us to humility. You know, the posture of prayer is humility. You know, we bow our head in, 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 in humility. They even, they even would, they would kneel. They would crouch. The monks would even, in, in, in a ridiculous fashion to take this the other way, would lay on the ground as flat as they could with their hands down, their feet down, and their faces turned so they could get as low to the ground as possible. 
And so they were actually trying to make their their posture in uh, their low posture a practice of righteousness, as opposed to standing tall so others can see you. And so really the idea is, are you proud or are you humble when you pray? What is the motive? That's what Jesus wants us to know. And you can look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and you can see this posture. The, the tax collector, stand, I mean, I'm sorry, the Pharisee stands before the men and he boasts of his goodness. And the tax collector, in a humble position, beats his chest and says, I'm a wicked man, have mercy on me. It's not necessarily the physical posture that Jesus is concerned with, yet your physical posture might actually reflect your spiritual posture. Right? So, as we say, not just standing, but they're standing in the synagogues and the street corners. That's where the people are. They seek the people's praise, their recognition, that they may be seen by others. And of course, that's their motive. To be seen. To be praised by others. And that's what we do see in the, in the, in the give to the needy. He says that they may be praised by others. I think we can infer that that's the same point. Is that they want to be praised by others. And like them, and like the needy, when you give to the needy to be seen, when you pray to be seen, Jesus says the same things. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. These who are doing these things before others to be seen... They are after a reward. And the problem is, is back in verse 1, when you seek a reward in this world, when you seek a reward from man, the end of verse 1 says, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so with this type of motive in prayer, you miss, the fir- you miss the actual purpose of prayer. You miss the actual purpose. You miss those motives that we already discussed to seek God, to seek His counsel, to give thanks, to seek forgiveness and restoration. You're not even anywhere close if your motive is to seek a reward from men. Jesus then gives His instruction in verse 6. So what do we do? What's the right way? He says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. When you pray, go into the room and shut the door. And your Father, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So does this mean again, okay, can I understand this, is that we should not have public prayer. No. You read the rest of Scripture and you know that's not the case. Because you see public prayer by Christ Himself and the apostles. And they call us to public prayer among the saints in our homes, 
with our families. Does this give give you an excuse not to pray in public? No. Again, as we come together, we come together in hopes that we as a group can lift up our voices in prayer to God on behalf of our needs and the needs of others. Again, this isn't just this isn't God this isn't Jesus saying the only good way to pray is in a closed room. It's about the motives. We just we have to always remember that. We cannot use this as prescription on only praying in our closet. But I'll tell you, it's good to have a prayer closet. It's good to pray in a room by yourself. Do you know how I know? Jesus did it. Look at Mark 1. Put your ribbon or thumb in this passage. Let's turn to Mark 1 real quick. And we'll, we'll see. It's really it's just one verse. Mark 1, verse 35. And th- this happens many times throughout the Gospels of Jesus' life. Jesus has been heal- healing many. He has just started His ministry. He's been cleansing people of unclean spirits. He's called His disciples. Ministry is full bore. His fame is rising. Verse 35, And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. And there He prayed. This was a common practice of Jesus. And you remember, as we read Mark 14, while he was in the garden with the apostles, he drew, he drew James, John, and Peter away from the, the, the disciples, and then he drew himself away from those three. Even in their presence, he found isolation for prayer. Do you want to be alone with your spouse? Yeah. Right? Especially when you're, you know, that you fit, you just, you, the love is on fire. And you have that, that emotional draw to your spouse. And you want time alone with them. Now, we'll, we'll talk about this more, but God is relational. Right? What do I mean by that? I mean, before time began, before God created anything, He was in, there was a relationship taking place. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when He created us, He created us in His image. We are relational people. And we want a relationship with people and with a deity, a God. Some of us seek it and find that that relationship that is to be fulfilled by God, we find it in other places. You see, Christ is, Jesus is the ultimate example of setting aside, getting away in order to have 
intimate conversation and time with the Father. And their relationship grew stronger. And that's what we do. That's what you do with your spouse. That's what you do when you're, when you're dating. You get together privately to learn and grow. And the love then grows as well. And this is, this is what prayer is. Between us and a loving, affectionate, relational God. Now he says, let's go back to Matthew 6. And again, simply we're going to go through this part quickly. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I just... I, let's think, let's, what is the reward? What is the reward of prayer? Look back at the motives, the reasons, the purpose of prayer. To seek Him. To get help and counsel from Him. To offer gratitude to Him. To seek forgiveness and restoration. The reward of prayer comes from the reason why we pray. God answers it in revealing Himself. Showing Himself. Guiding and helping and leading. Revealing the truth. Revealing His will. Forgiving us. Drawing us closer to Him. This is the reward that we want. And ultimately, what is it? It is God Himself. God Himself. Alright. Let's go to... The second wrong way Jesus gives us. Verse 7. And when you pray, again, the redundancy, the expectation that you are praying. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now let's, okay, let's stop for a second. Empty phrases, not heap up empty phrases. Or we can use the words meaningless repetition, vain repetition. Just what does that mean? It means that there's no weight to the prayer, there's no meat on the bones. It's hollow, empty. It just could be blown away just by any wind. There's nothing to it. Now, you, you know, you, you walk through the woods in the winter and all the trees, all the, all the oak trees, they look dead. There's no, there's no life on them. You know, and you you lean up to this big one and you rest on it and your hand almost falls through it. And you realize that the tree that you leaned upon was dead and empty. 
and hollow. But you couldn't tell it because it looked like all the other ones. Because they all, they all looked as if they were dead too because they had no life in them. But that, that's what happens when we try to bring empty, hollow prayer to God. We might deceive others. We might, well, we are deceiving ourselves. But the hollowness and the deadness of it is not escaped from God. And no, but notice he says, don't do this as the Gentiles do. We've got to understand, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone outside of Israel, right? Anyone who has not received the words and commands of God. You have to understand, when God called Abram, he made a nation, and he revealed himself to that nation and that nation alone. And he gave them not only an idea of who he is, but what he expects and how to live. And all the other people in the world did not receive these things, did not receive the law of God, did not understand his testimonies, his ways. But what would they do? Was there still pagan worship? Were there still people trying to worship a God? There was. And who were they praying to? They had no idea. What were they wanting? They had no idea. How were they to ask? They didn't know. So what do they have? They have meaningless repetition. They heap up empty phrases, hoping that something will stick. Right? We can pray this way and this way, and we'll just do it and do it and do it and do it and do it. Surely if we say it enough, it'll be good enough. No, that's not the case. That's not the case. Uh, They lack the knowledge of God. They lacked a relationship with God. They had no scripture to guide them. And so they were lost in their prayers and so heaped up empty phrases and meaningless repetition. They didn't know who to pray for. They didn't know who to pray to. They didn't know what they needed. And they didn't know how to pray. You know what it really was? Superstition. Now, we might not be heaping up empty, repetitious chants and phrases, but my question is, is when you pray, is it just superstition? Are, are you hoping that you're, by you praying that something good might happen? In the same way that you might not keep driving if a black cat crosses the road or if a mirror gets broken you throw salt over your shoulder or whatever you do because you don't want something bad to happen do you utter a prayer before you go to bed because you know that you just want something good to happen and you think maybe prayer is the way to do it there are much there are many acts of superstition in this country and in this world, even as people are praying, at least they're trying to pray in the name of Jesus. But they're just doing it for the sake of hoping something good will come from it. Uh, 
I wanted us to look at Nehemiah 9. We don't have time. You go and look at Nehemiah 9, you'll see this really long prayer, this like 40 verses, maybe even 50. And you see Nehemiah, on behalf of Israel, acknowledge God and is seeking Him and is giving... uh, and is showing thanksgiving. You also see that he is seeking help from God and on behalf of Israel is acknowledging their sin and need of forgiveness. This is a really good example of a prayer. Nehemiah 9. And then if you want more examples, you go through the Psalms. You flip through them. 44, 51, 32. So many good outlines of prayer. And of course, next week... Next week, we'll look at verse 9 through 13, where, he sa- where Jesus says, Pray then like this. And again, we finish in verse 8. Do not be like them, the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So again, we acknowledge one thing in that. Trust. Faith. That is what that manifest and results in. So now quickly, I want to reread this definition of prayer. I want to to knock out these few words in this definition so that you can see a correct way, the correct motive, the correct uh, correct idea of prayer. Prayer is a sincere, sensible an affectionate pouring out of the heart and soul to God through Jesus Christ by the help of the Spirit according to the Word, the Word of God. Number one, sincere. All true forms of righteousness are found in a a new heart, a new created heart, a regenerate heart, a heart changed by the Holy Spirit. True prayer is sincere prayer that comes from within. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The hypocrites do not pray this way. But they pray with a closed heart, a cold heart, a black heart. Sincere prayer is the same in public as it is in the closet. Prayer is sincere and sensible, meaning you sense something in your heart. You know what? When... No, I won't won't do that. It's the opposite of meaningless babble of the Gentiles. You sense in your heart your sin, your need of confession your need of God's mercy, or even you sense the beauty of God. And then we have the affectionate outpouring of the heart or the soul to God. And I already touched on this, that we are relational people and God is a relational God. And in relationships, we have affections and love and desires. Psalm 84 says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart 
and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then the last to close. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of our heart and soul to God through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to finish. No, I'm not going to finish on that. Here's a story. You live in a kingdom. Y'all ready for this story? You live in a kingdom. This kingdom has a king that is powerful, wise, sovereign. He rules well. The problem is you've messed up. You have rebelled against his rule. You have broken his laws and his commands. And so what happens when you do that? You are removed from his presence and you are denied any access to to the king anymore. Life happens and you have a great important problem and only the king can resolve it. But now you have a bigger problem. You have been denied access to the king because of your rebellion and your lawlessness. This is big trouble. And this is what everyone lives in outside of Christ. Removed from the presence of God their Creator because of their rebellion. Think about the Garden of Eden. So again, to finish the story, I remind you, why does prayer have to be through Jesus Christ? It's because your babble, your talk, does not make it to the King because you have been locked out. So what do you need? You need to get to the King. You need to have help. You need this to be resolved. You need a third party. You need a mediator. You need a helper. Someone who can reconcile your relationship. Fix your relationship with the King that you broke. And give you access to the King's presence. This is Christ. There is one God, one King. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 talks of the cleansing power of Christ to give us access to the throne of grace. And Hebrews 4 speaks of this access that we've been given. And that access in in Hebrews 10 comes through the tearing of the flesh of Christ. The mediator was cut, was killed, so that you could come into the presence of the King. This is why prayer must come through Christ Jesus and Him alone. Because without Him, you are denied access to God. Plain and simple. But you need help. You've been given access. You need help by the Holy Spirit. You need to know what to say, how to say it, what to ask, when to ask. The mediator gives you a helper in his spirit to lead you into the presence of the king, to teach you what to say, to bring to mind what needs to be said, and to speak for you sometimes when you don't have the words to speak. This is the Holy Spirit's help in our prayer. And what is 
the helper's tool, but prayer is according to his word. The Spirit's tool or textbook to teach you what to say, how to say, when to say it, what to ask for, when to ask for it, is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And Jesus was tempted in this manner, again in the garden, but after His betrayal. And this is the last thing I'll read. Matthew 26, verse 53. Peter comes to the defend of Jesus and pulls his sword. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Here's the prayer that he could have prayed. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? Do you not think that I could have prayed to the Father? And He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Do you know what hindered Jesus from praying that prayer? The Word of God. The Old Testament Scriptures that prophesied of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And He dare not pray one prayer against that. And so He did not pray that prayer. And so it's okay to not pray what you ought not to pray. And that's also, again, the help of the Spirit to lead you and to know what to pray. And sometimes, as Romans 8 says, all you can get out is grunts and groans and moans. And the Holy Spirit is there to intercede, to translate on your behalf before the King. I want you to understand that prayer is... Uh, it's a I'm trying to think of the right words here if you want to understand someone's relationship with God you can look at their prayer life it can show a lack of relationship or it can show a love that is so deep it can show a relationship with God that is hollow or it can show a relationship with God that is full of life and love your prayer life mimics your true relationship with God So I want you to evaluate that this week. I want you to think, is there a mismatch here in what I say I am, a Christian, a follower of Christ, and my prayer life? Do those two things match? And if they don't, I call you to repentance this week, to today to turn to Christ in true faith and true belief trusting in Him and when you truly trust in Him that's the motivation to pray to a God you cannot see let's 
sing one more song. <laughs>